Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hello and welcome to the Renaissance English History Podcast, a part of the Agora Podcast Network. I'm your host, Heather Tesco, and I'm a storyteller who makes history accessible because I believe it's a pathway to understanding who we are, our place in the universe, and being more deeply in touch with our own humanity. This is episode 124. It's a history's mystery on Perkin Warbeck. Just a very quick reminder that this week, my Indiegogo crowdfunding campaign for the Tudor Planner is ending. So you've got just a few more days until the 7th of June to snag the 2020 Tudor Planner at a fantastic price. Plus get a cornucopia of other Tudor goodies as perks and rewards. So check out the show notes for the link for this episode, or you can go to tutorplanner.com, which will take you straight to the Indiegogo. So tutorplanner.com or it's in the show notes. So now Perkin Warbeck. I remember reading Alison Weir's book on the princes in the tower way back in 1997. And over the years, my understanding has deepened each time I read something new about them. And then when I did a series on Tudor rebellions, I got caught up with Perkin Warbeck again. Then there was that Channel 4 documentary on him a few years ago. I think it was Channel 4. And basically, long story short, he and I have been kind of circling and orbiting around each other for a while now. And I thought that it was time to do an episode devoted solely to him and the forces at work with his rebellion. The first thing is, it's important to remember that we actually don't know for sure what his name really was. The information that we have about his childhood comes from a confession extracted through questionable circumstances before he was executed. And so much of it, including even his name, should be looked at skeptically. With that said, The information that he gave on family and relatives does match up with the birth and death records in Tournai, where he came from, so it is at least reliable to that level. But let's back up and talk about the context of Perkin Warbeck. For those of you who might not be as familiar with his story, he was the second pretender to Henry VII. He was supported by the Yorkists and others who wanted to wreak havoc on the new Tudor dynasty. I say he was the second because there was a pretender before him that was Lambert Simnel, whose unfortunate claim was to be that of the Earl of Warwick, the son of the Duke of Clarence, and therefore the nephew to Edward IV and Richard. Richard III. I say this was unfortunate because the Earl of Warwick at that time was very much alive and in the custody of Henry Tudor, residing in comfort and luxury, I suppose, (laughs) in the Tower of London. Thus, the real Earl of Warwick could be displayed. The entire thing 
The entire Lambert Simnel Rebellion ended with the Battle of Stoke in 1487, and that battle is seen today as the final battle in the Wars of the Roses. Lambert Simnel himself wasn't blamed. He was seen as just a puppet, and he was treated well by Henry Tudor. He actually became a spit boy in the kitchen and then a falconer, and he died around 1525. For more on that, I would refer you to my Tudor Rebellion series, which I will include in the show notes for the episode at englandcast.com slash Perkin. So englandcast.com slash Perkin will have the show notes for this episode, and I will include the links to those Tudor Rebellion episodes as well. So we have Lambert Simnel as the backdrop to this idea of pretenders. Of course, where it went wrong for Simnel was the fact that the real Earl of Warwick was alive and that could be proven. But what if you could pretend to be someone who was dead? or very much missing. That is where Perkin Warbeck bursts onto the scene, claiming to be Richard of Shrewsbury, the Duke of York, and Richard IV. In 1490, he appears at the court of Burgundy, which was, of course, presided over by Margaret of York, the Duchess of Burgundy. Coincidentally, Margaret was the sister of Edward IV and Richard III, so she claimed Perkin as her nephew, she actually minted coins in his name. The story was that his brother Edward, this is the story that he gave, was his brother Edward, Edward V, had been murdered, but he had been spared by the murderers. He, Richard Perkin, had been spared by the murderers because of his innocence. He had been sworn not to reveal his true identity for a number of years. He said that from 1483 to 1490, he had lived in Europe, cared for by Yorkists, but then his main guardian, Sir Edward Brampton, left to go back to England and he could declare his true identity. Now, the problem with that is that he never actually says who his murderers were. He gives very little information about what was going on in the tower when he was supposedly a prisoner there, and he doesn't tell us who killed his brother, Edward V, which would be really interesting information to have. But let's go back to Edward Brampton, this guardian of his. He's a curious person. He was the governor of Guernsey. He was an adventurer and a ship commander, and he was the godson of Edward IV. He was actually born in Portugal, Duarte Brandao. He emigrated to England in the late 1450s and converted to Catholicism with Edward IV sponsoring him. Of course, I say he can converted to Catholicism. There was no Catholic and Protestant then. This is 70 years before the Reformation starts, but he converted to Christianity and Edward IV sponsored him. So then this Edward Brampton fought in the Wars of the Roses. He was at Tewkesbury and he was eventually given the position of the governor of Guernsey. And then he won favors in both the Portuguese and the English courts and was knighted in August of 1484 by Richard III. So then Richard III is defeated. Brampton leaves England. He goes to the court of Margaret of Burgundy, where all of the disaffected Yorkists were gathering. And that's where he met Perkin Warbeck. So that's where his story meets up with Perkin Warbeck's. Now, the thing that's interesting is in a lot of these stories and books and historical fiction and stuff, he is seen as the rescuer of Prince Richard, the one that Elizabeth Woodville actually used to rescue Richard and take him away. So, you know, who knows? But that's where his story intersects with Perkin Warbeck, where he fits into this whole thing. So now let's go back to Richard slash Perkin. I'm going to call him Perkin from here on out, I think, just to keep it simple. So at this point, we see Perkin gaining support at the court of the Yorkist supporter, Margaret of Burgundy, who had a grudge against the Tudors for, you know, killing her brother and that whole messiness. So in 1491, Perkin goes to Ireland. 
Ireland was a hotbed of Yorkist support during this time. The Irish had supported Lambert Simnel before, and Ireland had a history of supporting Yorkists in general since the original Richard Duke of York had been the governor there during the reign of Henry VI. One of the leading Yorkists in Ireland helped him to take on the identity of Richard, but the Irish in general really weren't looking to start a rebellion at this point, and so Perkin goes back to Europe. So then we have the French entering. They see an opportunity to give Henry Tudor a headache. And in 1492, they receive Perkin to court, where he is welcomed by no less a figure than King Charles VIII. Now, Henry wasn't about to let this slight stand, and he invades France. He lands at Calais, he lays siege to Bologna, and eventually the French give in and agree to pay England £159,000 to expel Warbeck and not to ever support a pretender or rebel again. And in exchange for that, England goes away from Bologna and stops invading, and they also give up control of Brittany. So still we have Warbeck having the support of Margaret of Burgundy, though, she was the backbone of all of this, and she gave him lessons in the Yorkist court and prepped him on how to behave and how to be received. Henry complained to the Duke of Burgundy, Philip of Habsburg, about the fact that the Holy Roman Empire was harboring this pretender, and his complaint was ignored, so then he decides to put a trade embargo on Burgundy as punishment. Throughout Europe, Throughout these monarchs, Perkin was actually known as the Duke of York. And in 1493, he attended the funeral of the Holy Roman Emperor Frederick III and was recognized as King Richard IV of England. So it was either a really big joke and everybody was just using him to get under Henry's skin, or some people really believed that he was who he said he was. To be honest, it was probably a combination of both of those things. So in England throughout this period, many pro-Yorkist leaders came out supporting Warbeck, including Sir William Stanley and Sir Robert Clifford, who actually went to Europe to see for himself, and he wrote letters home confirming that Warbeck was truly Richard. Henry had many of these supporters rounded up and arrested and Tried, and most of them were beheaded. Although Robert Clifford turned state's evidence, he gave information on the other conspirators and he named names in exchange for a pardon. So now we've got 1495. Perkin Warbeck has been on the scene for about five years. He's been recognized in France and the Holy Roman Emperor and Ireland. He now in July makes his first landing in England. He lands at Deal in Kent. And this landing is financed by Margaret, of course. He clearly was hoping that a popular uprising would happen, but instead the locals rallied for Henry and the battle was over before Perkin even got off the boat. Literally, he didn't even get off the boat. He retreated to Ireland where he found a little bit of support, but not enough to justify staying there. And so instead he moves to Scotland. Now here's where his life gets interesting. James IV of Scotland was happy to have him because he was a valued piece of leverage in an international chess game. This is right when Henry VII is negotiating Prince Arthur's marriage with Spain, and James courted Spanish ambassadors whom he hoped would help him to negotiate some of his grudges against England. So he was willing to say, look, I've got this guy saying that he's Richard, King Richard IV. Maybe I'll give him up. Maybe I won't. I don't know. But will you guys help me out with some of these issues I have with England since you're there at court talking to them? them all the time and 
anyway. So James then allows Perkin to marry a cousin of his, Lady Catherine Gordon. The marriage was celebrated in Edinburgh with a joust, a tournament to celebrate the marriage, just like any kind of noble marriage. James gives Perkin his own clothing for the wedding, and Perkin wore armor covered in purple silk. This is one of the times when people say, of course he had to actually be Richard, or at least noble, because how would someone from, a a poor person from Tournai know? know how to wear armor and behave so eloquently in a joust in a tournament like this. How would they know how to do that? I don't know. That's why it's a history's mystery. But it's important to remember that, you know, he was treated like he was the Duke of York or King Richard IV. He was wearing armor. He was at some of these events and he was possibly even jousting. The biographer of James IV, Norman MacDougall, says that this is actually evidence, though, that the Scots didn't believe that he was truly Richard because a cousin to the king isn't quite the same status of a wife that the actual king of England would expect in a marriage. It's almost like kind of giving them crumbs to say, oh, here you can marry my cousin when she wasn't really that high of a noble person. I don't know. Again, it's a history's mystery. (laughs) So whether this belief was sincere or not, either way, by September of 1496, James is getting ready to invade England with Perkin. He had a banner made for Perkin as the Duke of York. The event was recorded by John Ramsay of Balmain, who wrote and described it for Henry. He reported 60 German soldiers who arrived on two small boats to meet with Warbeck. He estimated that they had about four or five days of provisions by the time they reached England, and he advised that the English could attack with just a small army. So in September, September 14th, James and Perkin went to Holyrood Abbey to offer up their prayers. Then they crossed the river. River Tweed at Coldstream, where they hoped for support in Northumberland for Warbeck. That support never came. And so they did go four miles into England with a royal banner and they tried to destroy some castles and some buildings and some towers. And then they left on the 25th of September when an English army was coming from Newcastle. The Spanish ambassadors then suggested that as part of the marriage negotiations between England and Spain, a peace with Scotland should be included. So time goes on and we're about a year later, a little less than a year later. James is really kind of getting tired of Warbeck being at his court. It's kind of getting annoying by this point. And he decides to make peace with England and he hires a ship to return Perkin to Ireland. This is in July 1497. So, you know, about nine, 10 months after their little adventure in Northumberland. After trying to lay siege at Waterford in Ireland, he was chased away by English ships and he was left with only about 120 men total. So how do we get from Ireland to the invasion of England? And again, this is something else to think about. And this is one of the things that people who are pro Perkin Warbeck and believe that who he is, who he said he was, point out that how would some someone keep going at this point. He's down to nothing. Why would he keep going? Why wouldn't he just give up and go back to a life of obscurity, right? But then on the other hand, he's so far along, how could you give up? Either way, in 1497, there was a rebellion going on in Cornwall over taxes for a war with Scotland. And the Cornish were not too keen on these taxes paying for the war with Scotland, which was on the complete other end of the country. So they didn't really care. So Warbeck arrives in Cornwall and he says that he could stop the taxes if only they would support his claim. And this they did declaring him Richard IV and allowing him to lead a Cornish army of 6,000 men who marched into Exeter that September. Henry sent troops to crush the Cornish. Perkin panicked and fled. 
And he was captured in Hampshire, where he surrendered in October of 1497. He was imprisoned and then paraded through the streets on horseback as a trophy. The thing is, he was treated well by Henry at first. Again, like with Lambert Simnel, Henry wanted to not punish the pawns, but go for the ringleaders instead. So Warbeck confessed to being an imposter. He was given a room at Henry's court where he was allowed to attend royal banquets. He was kept under guard, though, and he was not allowed to sleep with his wife, the Lady Catherine Gordon, who was living with the Queen during this time. After about 18 months of this sort of house arrest in a gilded cage, Warbeck tried to escape. He was quickly recaptured and was then sent to the Tower of London, first in solitary confinement and then next to the aforementioned Earl of Warwick. Supposedly, these two tried to escape in 1499 and were recaptured and executed. Henry really wanted any doubts that he was who he said he was out of the way, and he was interrogated even by someone who had known both of the princes. A Dr. John Augustine was brought in to try to trip him up and figure out where his story had gone awry. But interestingly, he really was able to stick to his story. He was really coached well, even to the point where several people did come to believe that he was truly Richard. So either way, this is the period when Ferdinand and Isabella are seeking assurance that Henry is secure on his throne, and they want all obstacles to his reign out of the way before they send their daughter Catherine to England. So many people believe that Perkin Warbeck and the Earl of Warwick may have been framed and goaded into escaping in order to justify hanging them just to get them out of the way. So they did apparently try to escape. The Earl of Warwick was beheaded since he was noble, but on the 23rd of November, 1499, Perkin Warbeck was hanged at Tyburn. An interesting thing, the biggest thing that Perkin Warbeck had going for him was his appearance. In one sketch drawing, I have it in the show notes, you can see a clear resemblance between Edward IV and Perkin Warbeck. And so before they hung him, supposedly the guards beat him up to hide that appearance, again, to cast away any doubt or any lingering suspicions that he might really have been Richard. There's been some speculation that he might have been Edward's illegitimate son or some relation to the Yorkists just because of that appearance. He does look so much like them. Maybe he was even a relative of Margaret of York in some way. There are some authors who really do believe that Perkin Warbeck was who he said he was. After all, like I said, how could this lowly Breton boy speak English so eloquently and comport himself so well and not have an accent and, you know, talk so well and just be so eloquent? And how could he know how to behave at court if he hadn't been brought up in it? And it's certainly possible that he was Richard, Duke of York. And this is why it's a history's mystery. Most academics don't give credence to that belief, and I'm not going to argue with them. But it is certainly a tantalizing idea that one of the princes in the tower was able to escape. There are, of course, tons of books about Perkin Warbeck and the princes in the tower to choose from, but I'd send you to the works of Matthew Lewis for one view and Alison Weir for another, and I'll add links to the show notes at englandcast.com slash Perkin. He has fascinated writers for centuries, and even Mary Shelley, the author of Frankenstein, wrote a book about him. I'll link to some of my favorites, like I said, englandcast.com slash Perkin. You can get in touch with me through the listener support line at 8016-TESCO, or through Twitter at Tesco, or facebook.com slash englandcast. And remember to snag the Tudor cornucopia at tutorplanner.com to take you to the crowdfunding campaign. Good for just two more days. Thanks so much for listening. I will be back in about two more weeks. Bye-bye. Blow northern wind, a sandal may be sweating. 
Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.